when did you find out? What you do know what what caused it? I mean, tell me about it. Um, yeah, I can tell you the day I found out. Um, I found out on January twenty second, twenty eighteen, and my birthday is actually the twenty third. So I had I had to stay overnight in the hospital to get seen, and I had been sick, but we had no idea that like what it was. Um, what do you mean sick? Like what what was it that you felt? I was having these. Uh, my body, it turns out my body wasn't pr- processing ammonia properly. And um, the symptoms I were having were s- similar to, it's called HE for short. It's like hepatic encephalopathy. a lot. So I, I can never pronounce it properly, but they call it HE. And it's basically the ammonia thing. Okay. So I was having like these blackouts where I would... um kind of stare off into space for like 10, 15 seconds. And I never knew when they were coming in, but I could tell when I just kind of like snapped out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like you fell asleep for a second. I know what you mean. So I was going to a bunch of doctors and they thought it was neuro stuff. So I was getting sleep tests and um, I was in there for like five nights and they had all these wires hooked up to my head and I had like everything all wrapped together on top, like a big wizard's hat. Okay. And then I was plugged, I was plugged into the wall and I remember I could barely reach the bathroom. And then I just, nothing was helping. I was still having these problems and I went in for, uh, cat, not a cat scan. And, and, uh, is it, what's the other one? Not a cat scan, but you're in that machine. A PET scan to MRI? MRI, yeah. Okay. And they were putting some kind of fluid through me to see how it traveled. And I guess when it got to my gallbladder, they're like, um, it just goes there and stops. It never comes out. So they like brought me down to emergency, took the gallbladder out. And that was in October of 2017. And they're like, all right, that should fix everything. And then I wasn't getting any better. And then I had gone home for the Christmas holiday and I was living in DC at the time because everything has happened at Georgetown hospital. Okay. And I got home and I just feeling like I had the worst sickness. My stomach hurt. My whole body hurt. Like I just laid on the couch for like three weeks until my sister and my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, Michelle, they basically dragged me to the hospital. Now this is after you had your gallbladder taken out. After I had my gallbladder out, after I had all the sleep tests. Was there any recovery after your gallbladder getting taken out? Like, did you feel better for a while or it was just shitty and then shitty and then here you are? Not really. Okay. No, I just felt like that I was just like, I had the flu or I just never catch up on sleep. Um, a lot of pain, but you know, I was, I was a lot bigger. I was almost like, I was almost 300 pounds. I was like 290. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I put suits on now that I haven't worn in a while. They're huge, just like the Jared commercial. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, you know, I got to get into shape. I'll just deal with it, you know. And I was still, and I was struggling on and off. Well, not really. I was never really off with alcohol. Okay. Uh, but I had stopped drinking like I did before I lived with my girlfriend, basically. But I guess the damage had been kind of done. My body wasn't good at fighting off disease, so it turns out I kept getting pneumonia. Which I didn't know until, again, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, I guess. So gallbladder out, still felt, still felt bad. And then it just suddenly hit me. And I was like, I can't, I, mean, I can't go anywhere. They dragged me to the hospital. And then I eventually get seen. But it, was, it wasn't that busy that night. But I didn't have, like, my own room. I was kind of in the hallway with a curtain around me. Okay. And 
couple doctors came in, they gave me some pain pills and they're like, we'll let you sleep it off and it'll be okay in the morning. So like six hours later, seven hours later after that, they're having like a shift change and they come in and say, you're getting released, but I'm all banged up on drugs now. So I'm like, okay, whatever, I'll go home and it'll be fine. Right. And I put my clothes back on, I'm like ready to go, waiting for the paperwork to sign. And I guess during the shift change, a new orderly or head doctor on the shift came on. He was walking by checking charts. And he looks at the chart, he looks at me, he looks at the chart, he looks at me. And he's like, is this you? And I'm like, yes. He's like, no way. He's like, you don't look outside what this chart shows you on the inside. And, um, and my wife, thank God my wife was with me because she remembers everything. Um, and I remember this guy looking like, do you remember, remember the game Mega Man? Remember what, Doc, remember what Dr. Wiley looked like? The old yeah. white guy with the hair and the glasses? Yes. In my mind, he looked like that. And in my head, I remember him having like an Austrian accent. But Michelle swears he was from New Zealand. Okay. But I still remember him being Austrian. And he's like, your liver's all banged up. Um, he's like, you, he basically just said it like real straight. You need a liver transplant. And we're, me and my wife are kind of like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, you, you need, yeah, you need a new liver. He's like, you need a new liver. I can tell by these numbers. And we're like, okay, what do we do? He's like, well, you need to get on the list. And we're like, you know, the list, you know, you hear the rumors, the list can take forever. Right. And I'm like, how much, you know, like how much time? He's like, if you don't get on the list and get a liver, you have three months. And we were just like, you know, holy shit, I have three months. But it, it, it almost didn't hit me because when he's like, there's a chance to get on the list. And I guess in my head, because it was still something left to do, it wasn't a no yet. I wasn't that concerned. I guess it's being a lifelong Philly fan that, you know, it's not over till it's over. <laughs> so I ended up I got so I got admitted and then they ran like a hundred more tests and then that's when they found the pneumonia. And apparently I, I I had had pneumonia for a long time. They're like, we can tell you've had it for a little bit. And then they told me what kind of pneumonia it was. And I looked it up, or my sister looked it up. And it's most commonly involved in some kind of feces but people who go spelunking get it mostly like i've been in a cave off you know obviously but um like i'm spending my time going through the the sewers of dc like a ninja turtle in my spare time <laughs> so i was in the hospital for like three weeks trying to kick the pneumonia and every time it would go away it would come back a couple days later now was this pneumonia You've had it for some time, some time like you brought it to the table or some time it happened from the time that you got your gallbladder out to the time that you're in the ER right now. The way, because I don't think the gallbladder helped me overall, um, I'm going to say that I think I, I, I had had it. And that's what the doctors kind of implied, that you've probably been fighting this and your body's having so much trouble fighting that, that it can't fight off the other things that attack me. You know, I... Did, did you need your gallbladder taken out or, or was that just like step one of this? They actually, if I had, if I still had my gallbladder, any person who gets a liver transplant, their gallbladder goes anyway. Okay. So it wouldn't have mattered you know, at the end of the day, they would have taken it. Lucky on their part or, or methodical on their part. It sounds, well, it sounds lucky to me that the guy caught it when he did, because they were really about to let me go back home. Okay. But I had been to a bunch of doctors trying to figure out what was going on in the first place. I mean, it, was, it took about a year of going to doctors until I finally even realized that I needed a liver transplant. But they were so, they were so focused on me 
like blacking out. We were calling them episodes. Like I was having these episodes. And my family had seen it. Michelle would see it. And they thought they were like like petty mall seizures and everything. Almost. Like I, they were afraid for me to drive. I mean, I lived in the city, so I wasn't driving that much anyway. Right. Um, so I wasn't allowed to drive for a long time after that. And again, like that doctor, if he hadn't just happened to walk by and catch the chart, I would have gone home until something you know, worse happened. I, I mean, you drank a lot growing up. Right. I don't know if you, I don't know if you drank more than the average bear, but you probably did. Oh yeah. Um, is that what this is attributed to, or is this some other thing that they think? It wasn't the drinking alone. Like if I had hypothetically wasn't drinking at all and I'd already done the, the damage the cirrhosis damage to my liver that I had done from drinking the way I did for so long. Um, I would have been okay. But the fact that I was doing the other things, including the ammonia, the, the pneumonia, my body just couldn't fight off the amount of stress or disease that was coming my way, which is why the HE was causing the, uh, the blackouts or the episodes. So how old are you? And you've got cirrhosis of the liver that now requires you to have a liver transplant. I had just turned 38 the day I found out. You're not even 40 years old yet, and you need a liver transplant. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why the doctor was real shocked when he when he was double, taking a double take, because he thought, like, I was waiting for my father or something, and he was in the bathroom. Right. Because he's like, you don't look like this chart, which is probably why, in my head, I was like, oh, I'm doing okay. You know, I can't be that bad. I mean, I was in grad, I was, I was, I had left grad school. Um, oh, actually, I left that out. So the reason I went to D.C. in the first place was to go to grad school. And I'm taking my exams right before my last semester, and I collapsed during my test. Um, and I had to go to the hospital, and I thought I was having a heart attack when I like came to. But I, 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 they labeled it to a panic attack, but I've never really had had a panic attack up until then. So I guess the similarities go. If you want it to be a panic attack, it's a panic attack. Okay. But um, so. And that was June or July, I guess, June, right at the beginning of summer. And that's when I passed out. And then more doctors, more sleep tests, and then the gallbladder, then the transplant. Okay. Now, why all the sleep tests? What were they trying to prove, basically? They were trying to figure out if, like, when those episodes were happening, if brainwave activity was changing. Okay. Because I couldn't feel them coming on, I couldn't, like, press a button and say record. Right. They had to like wait until I, until like it was done, and then I had to remember to hit a button, and then they would review the tape. Right. But when it was happening, and I hit the button a few times when I was in there, um, they're like nothing changes. I'm like, well, it just happened. You saw me stare into space for 30 seconds. I'd never seen it until uh, my wife had a video. I was like sitting in the front of the car, and she was in the back, like riding with my father. And I guess it happened. I kind of like would shake my hand a little bit. And then um, and just kind of stare off into space. So how long after you get that diagnosis to the time that you get a liver? Uh, oh, I was quick. Uh, I was really bad. The, the, the score they use to rate how bad your liver is is called the MELD score. I don't remember what it stands for, M-E-L-D. And the worst you can be is a 40, and I was a 39. Holy shit, dude. Yeah. So when you find that out, when you look at that, did you already know? Or, or have a, 
an idea that it was going to be pretty bad? Uh, you know, what were you preparing yourself for? I didn't expect it to be that bad because on, besides like that three weeks before I went to the hospital, I was just laying on the couch. I was feeling better. I was, they had, they cleaned out my system. They had me on painkillers. So, and I was doing, Oh, you know, I was going to grad school and all that stuff before that. So I was feeling like I was doing okay. And I'll just power through it. Like I do everything else. Um, yeah. When they said that your score is, is this high? I, I'm still kind of like in shock by it because it's it's hard. It was hard to grasp the whole reality of it when they're like, you know, if you don't have a liver in you know ninety days, you're gonna die. Your life flash before your eyes. Not then. Um, I feel like when, right before I went under, I had a little of a, a little. You know, you you think about it because it's you know I remember saying goodbye to my wife, and then they roll you in, and you have to sign all this paperwork because like you you might not wake up. And I had to go through all these these hoops and things to get on the list. There's like a team of doctors and every doctor has a different job and then they have a team and they run, they run you through the gauntlet of tests and then they meet to figure out if they think you should get the liver. If I, if I, if I could take it physically, they're really worried about, especially if alcohol is involved at all ever in your life, they always concerned about, are you going to drink again? Even if you're not in there for necessarily an alcohol related liver, it's like, you need we need to trust you not to drink again because the liver is going to go to somebody else if you're just going to waste it right right now do you know anything about the donor of your liver um not really um 42 years 42 male and i believe he it was some kind of heart condition that caused him to pass and I got the liver, and the person in the room next to me, he actually got the kidneys from the same person. So I chatted it up with him for a little bit. But they moved him somewhere else. What did you talk to him about? Um, kind of with both of our experiences of getting there. You know, a little bit about, like, you know, how did you find out? What did you do beforehand? How long have you been waiting? Um, we complained about the pain a lot. Did you guys talk about the, the donor at all? Yeah. But you, you don't, they purposely don't tell you much about them. Right. Uh, if I wanted to contact the donor, you have to, there's a, there's a list of things you need to, to check off. And one of them being, you have to like write a letter and then you never know if they reached out, unless you reach out and vice versa. Okay. So they don't tell you that much unless there's, there's certain, like there's so many parameters for getting the, the liver from the donor. Okay. There's certain things he's allowed to, like they'll tell you, like if, he, if he was an IV drug user once, like years ago, they might tell you that the liver's still okay. It all depends on the person because when the, when the donor passes, they go to the hospital and they check everything out. And then however they have their communications with for the donor list, the, the, the parts just go out. You can save up to, if you're hypothetically healthy, 100% healthy, and you pass away, uh, you can save up to eight people, I believe, with organ donation, and then like another 75 
from skin and things like that. Yeah, the other interesting stat that comes up is like from whatever survey they took, 95% of America agrees with uh, would be would be an organ donor, agrees with organ donation, but only 53% are signed up. That's incredible. I think so. I can't remember honestly. I still am now since it's on my license, but I can't be one. Why do you think that is? Were you an organ donor before all of this? No. That's what they told me. Maybe, maybe for somebody else, but I know I can't be. At all. Maybe my eyes or something, but who, I don't, you wouldn't want my eyes. So that's what kept me out of the military. I can't see. When did you get the call? Like what, you know that you're on the list, you know, you're driving home. You're like, all right, I guess I'm on this list now. Uh, hope the, hope the phone rings in the next three months. And then, you know, one day what happens? From the time I got diagnosed from my birthday, I was in there for maybe three weeks straight in a hospital. Yeah, because I kept, they wanted to send me home, but I, I kept getting the same pneumonia over and over again. They'd clear it, and then like, oh, you have to sit here for three days, we'll test you, you can go home. Three days later, I get the test, and I still can't go home. Okay. So after, I think I spent a total of 31 nights in the hospital. So I remember I, I went home after about three weeks. Less than 24 hours later, I got a call. And they said, you're, you're on deck. So you got to come in anyway, because the person ahead of you, if he doesn't get it, it's going to be yours. So I went in. He ended up taking the liver, but I got pneumonia again. So I was in the hospital again for five more days. And then I went home. And then like 12 hours later, they called me to go back in. Okay. And that's the liver I got. So I, got, I had surgery on February 24th. So from February 23rd, when I found out, to Feb, sorry, January 23rd, the day I found out, February 24th. I had uh, my surgery and then I was in the ICU for like a week and they send you home. How did you feel? Oh man. Awful. Well, mentally, like I say this all the time, I feel like a different person mentally from after I woke up. Um, I see you for a week. How did you feel after afterwards? Like you wake up and almost like a sense of uh, like clarity. You know, I think about things differently. I, analyze like things like way more logically when i the way i approach like it's like guess everything now is that because you woke up like is that why i don't know i mean i think about how i used to be um but again i spent a long i spent a long time you know drinking um so some of those memories are kind of hazy but I know my wife will tell you that I, mean, I feel different. I act different. Um, besides like, you know, being blessed, whatever, for being alive and all being grateful that unfortunately someone had to pass for me to live. I felt like a new person. And I can, I feel it. I feel like all the things I used to do, I don't want to do. Sometimes I, I kind of argue like I got old, you know, because now I like staying home and not, not doing anything. What have you done since then? Because you don't look like you weigh three hundred pounds. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm back. I, I dropped down to like, to like one eighty. That's great. Afterwards, that's incredible. And then, um, and then I put a bunch back on eat this, with the steroid they gave me for like six months. Okay. Um, do you have to take any kind of medicines, like anti-rejection medicines? The one med I gotta take forever is called uh, tacrolimus which is the transplant med that everybody takes. Most people have to take it forever. Some people 
don't need it after a certain amount of time, but I'm down to one milligram a day. And when I came out, I was up to 14 milligrams a day. Okay. Yeah, when I came out, I was taking I was taking like forty pills a day when I first came home. Wow, wow, that's just where they start, yeah. About ten different medications, about forty pills total, three times, not uh, throughout the day, over a three three do every eight hours. And how long do you have to do that for? Um, I still take a lot of pills now, but they would they would take some out and add some in based on uh, my side effects, and I had a lot of side effects. Uh, my liver is great. But the biggest problem I have, and the best way to explain it, is when food stuff goes through your liver and gets processed, then on its way out, whatever that tube is called, that, that passageway, would eventually go to your gallbladder and then continue on. Mm -hmm. So when they cut that, they take the old one out and put the new one in, the inside of it used to be nice and smooth. But when they put it together, think of like a bad soldering job on the inside. Gotcha. And without having a gallbladder, which produces bile, my body isn't breaking down the food as fast as it goes through my body. Right. And even with the meds, sometimes it happens, but usually the meds can control it. But I mean, anything is thicker than like a protein shake would, uh, would cause problems. About 45 minutes later, we kick in right after I ate and I would... I'd be out for a couple hours. I would just have to like lay down at a certain angle and just ride it out until it passed through. What do you think happens when we die? <sighs> Honestly, I think that it might just be the end. You know, I don't know if there's like a heaven. Fair. I mean, so we think that we're just biological. Uh, we really have no, nothing other than just face value. And I'm not, I, I mean, I'm just wondering, trying to get a sense of, of what your, you know, what your spirituality is. Well, the, the logical me puts it at, you know, it's probably the end, like every, like the life, but I would, you know, deep down, I kind of hope or think that your spirit is more than just your body. And that when, once you physically pass that your spiritual remain will stay part of the planet, I guess. is Okay. Okay. Um, so when you, kind of a weird question do you have weird memories now or or weird dreams or anything like that no and that's actually one of the things i said to the to my my neighbor after in the hospital after he had the kidneys like do you feel different and i didn't then but there's things now that i that i hate that i used to love like what bananas for some reason like i like i eat a regular banana i throw it up okay there's something about the texture of sushi that's no matter how good it tastes, it's just disgusting. No, these were, these are immediate kind of changes that you kind of woke up and the next time these events rolled around, you just noticed something different. Yeah. Like I had sushi because my wife likes it. And when I was younger, I hated it. And then I, you know, then I gave it a shot and it was okay for a while. But the couple times I've tried it since it's just, no, but I also have a problem with my appetite. Um, since they took me off the steroid, uh, I don't, I don't really crave food at all. It's not, I don't really get hungry and I end up not eating a lot. Eating is almost like a chore. Have you thought of doing something crazy and it doesn't have to be 
like insane, but just something that's atypically Jeff since since that whole experience. You know, have you have you thought of I I don't know doing anything different or dramatic or drastic or something just to make you feel alive? I guess. Yeah, I thought about um, one of the things I had to do after because my liver came so quick. Usually they want people to, to wait six months and prove that you're not screwing around. Like you have to go to meetings, you have to see some kind of counselor, you got to go to the hospital and check in and do all this stuff. But since I had no time, I promised to do it afterwards. Okay. One of the things I had to do was go see a, like a real therapist. And I'd never really been to like a, like a real therapist before. So I went in there thinking like they're going to blame everything on mom or it's like Tony Soprano or something like that. <laughs> and one of the things we ended up talking about was like, cause I had all these emotions when I came out uh, and, and, you know, tried to like come back into the real world. And I'm like, you know, I'm on, like, I already died. Technically I died once, you know, and I, by this happening, I've shortened my average lifespan. You know, should I start, should I start like checking off bucket list things? I just haven't done it. What have you thought about though? What's on that list? Oh, jumping out of a plane and like bungee jumping or, and stuff like that. But when it comes time to, you know, like put something together and go actually do it. And I think about, you know, where, where would I rather spend my time? And I tend to rather just be with people that are close to me and, you know, spend time with family, spend time with my wife, spend time with my buddies from back home. Right. Besides when I go back home, going out and meeting at a bar or something like I just rather sit and hang out and, or like, I love when my, my buddies who have kids, I love their birthday parties. You know, you go, you see everybody for a couple hours and you get to go home. Yep. Yep. Or like 4th of July barbecues or something like that. So I, I'd like to be around people as much as I can. And at the same time, I enjoy silence. <laughs> you know? I get that. So where are you now? You're in DC. No, I'm in Philly, just north of Philly. Philly. It's called okay. uh, Willow, Willow Grove. Okay. Were you in? You were in DC for a while. Yeah, I was in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is technically Maryland, but it's it's like right over the border. If I walked like six more blocks, I'd be across the line in DC. I was right by that metro station. Were you in DC? You were in DC during the George Foley protests. Yeah, but I was in recovery. Okay. So I went down a couple of times during the day to see the aftermath. Uh, I went down to that church. Remember Trump came out and all the I was, tear gas and security. Mm -hmm. So I went down to that spot where they were actually having a protest during the day. Yep. Yep. What day is this? A couple of days after the church had burned, but that became, so whatever road the church is, the address of the church is on the back of the church faces, not, it's not the green, but it's some kind of, grassy opening property so that kind of became the daily meeting place for for blm and everybody with the the rah-rah-rah cheering all day until the riots came later at night so i went and, and checked that out but i was down there for when trump won for his inauguration and that was i mean it looks like nothing compared to what happened but that was fucking crazy when i was down there they were riding, they were breaking windows, trying to set buildings on fire. 
you know, throwing rocks at cops, throwing rocks at Secret Service. But it wasn't as organized as it ended up being later. It was still kind of what they like what they do over like on the West Coast. So I ran there and that that was an experience because I had gotten I had gotten to DC that Monday and I think that the protests had reached the White House Sunday night. Um, I think I think that's right. And um, you know, so I get there, I arrived in Bethesda at like three in the afternoon. I dropped my stuff off in the hotel and I had been running for eight days, nine days. So I, I figured I'd, I'd run light from Bethesda. It was like a two hour run. I think it was like 12 miles or something like that. I ran past the Washington Cathedral, which I had never seen before. I used and to live right there. Bro, I've been to DC, I don't know, a lot, you know? I mean, it's we went on field trips and family and everything else. I've never, I don't recall ever seeing the Washington Cathedral and how massive that thing was. It's oh, funny. It's huge. And it's, it's beautiful. And it was locked up because of COVID. Um, it was funny because I'm walking through and I'm looking at this massive thing in awe and I walk underneath and there's this little courtyard or, you know, they've got this little garden and there's a couple there and they're looking at me kind of weird. And, you know, I, I remark about how beautiful this place is. And they're like, oh, you've never seen it before. I said, no. And they're, where are you from? I said, I'm from New Jersey. And they said, well, what are you doing here? I have the conversation. I recorded it. Uh, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I just ran here. And they're like, from New Jersey? And I said, yep. So we had this nice little like conversation. Um, you know, They seemed like my kind of people. But when I got to D.C., the protests were right out in front of the White House where that church is. I don't know. I don't think it had burned yet. Um, this was the day after, but that little building, that little structure in front of the White House, that little community center or whatever that building was that they torched was. And it was, it was very like for me, mm -hmm. I mean, it was an emotional experience to run down there in the first place. But like when I got there to smell wet, burned wood, while I'm looking at the White House, made me feel a little uncomfortable in a way, right? And I'm, I like to think of myself as a patriot. And, and that, I don't know, those are two, two conflicting inputs of information in my nose and what my eyes were showing. Like, it just didn't jive well with me. But what was interesting was just how organized that whole thing was so quickly. Now, I don't, I didn't live in D.C., you know, political protests or something that I've never been a part of. So to get down there and see the camera crews and everything else and walking through and get your, get your, I can't breathe t-shirts. And, and it really was like that. Now, what was also interesting was there were a few of those statues that were defaced and spray painted and, you know, just beat up. Um, what was also interesting was, uh, when I walked by the Lincoln Memorial, <laughs> They had, well, first of all, it, DC that day looked like a Hollywood set, okay, for for me to, to see, I don't know, hundreds of armed men standing on the steps of the, of the Lincoln Memorial, okay, they had that shit blocked off, they had jersey barriers set up, you were not, nobody was getting in there and, and damaging that thing. Um, yeah. 
what else was really interesting was the White House had, I don't even know how many policemen on the inside of the gate. Um, there were three road, three deep for the full length of the White House with just as many on each flank. There was probably about 500, no shit, 500, 600 guys with their little shields and their, and their batons, like as a show of force, I suppose. I also saw the most heavily armed man that I've ever seen in my life. He had like plate armor over his knees and his elbows and his shoulders. He had a little, it looked like an MP5. Uh, he was backing a nondescript looking Ford Bronco in one of the gates to the White House that they, they must have snuck somebody in on that. On top of the Federal Reserve, there were crow's nests with spotters and snipers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, for me, that blew my mind. And then also, just as interesting, there were SUVs that looked like they came off of a used car lot with the rear window removed. And sitting in the back of those SUVs and pickup trucks were a guy in some sort of military or, or department uniform holding a machine gun. Um, just looking out the back of these vehicles, uh, I was standing, I guess that's the Holocaust Memorial right there, right? Which is kind of by the Washington monument. Yeah. Okay. So I was there's standing, bunch, on, I don't remember everything is, but there's a bunch of stuff down there. Okay. So I'm standing on that corner. Um, and there were five different agencies represented by five different armed people and five different vehicles blocking that intersection. You know, DC has. 27 police departments. I'm, I'm not, I saw so many different uniforms when I was there. 27 different police departments in the district. That is insane. Yeah. It was like secret service, CIA, FBI. I mean, it was so many different, so many different, uh, departments, but, um, eight o'clock was the curfew that night. It was seven 30 and I'm like, I'm not running in these conditions. I'm not running back to Bethesda from here. Yeah. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take a cab. That's a whole nother story. But, at eight o'clock, wouldn't you know it? It looked like Nickelback opened for Fifty Cent, and Nickelback just got done playing. Because at eight o'clock, all the college kids—and I don't mean this with any disrespect—it's just what I observed. All the all the college kids that wanted to be a part of this political, you know, demonstration with their "I can't breathe" T-shirts, white kids, blue hair. Eight o'clock, like clockwork, started walking out and then walking in past them. No shit. Everybody in black, everything, hoodies, kids had battery powered Ryobi leaf blowers for the tear gas. Like these, and they came in mass. I don't know where they, they didn't walk there. Okay. Know that much. They showed up. There were hundreds of them. Somebody brought them in. And and furthermore, running from Bethesda down there and running past these small shops that had signs in the window, no shit, black-owned business, mm -hmm. uh, show us mercy, like these, these small business owners, and wouldn't you know it, the windows were broken and all of the inventory inside was cleaned out of a hole on the bottom of a glass door. And I'm looking and I'm like, you know what, neighborhood people wouldn't be doing this to neighborhood people. These people aren't from around here. There's a third party here and i don't know who it is i don't claim to know who it is but there was some that that was that was some shady shit man well i i lived down there three times the first time i lived right across the street from the church um the lancashire building it was right on wisconsin ave because i was at school at american university i did like a it was supposed to be a semester abroad but since i was interested in u.s foreign policy i stayed in dc 
everybody else got to go somewhere fun. And I was also interning in Congress at the time. And this is 2013, whenever the Syria first broke off, before the Civil War, but it was still, you know, should we bomb Syria? It was during Obama's term. Okay. So during my lunch breaks or my break or whatever, because I didn't really care what I did. I was an intern Mm -hmm. and I was older than half the staff and the congressman staff, except for minus two people were all younger than me doing all the, the bureaucrat stuff. Like there was a person who was in charge of environment and healthcare and someone was just foreign policy and something there was like six or seven people and they handled everything. And then there was the congressman, his assistant, and then like his, his like consigliere, who was an older dude at his own office in the back. But on my breaks, I'd go outside and there was always little protests about something, you know, it was Syria or wherever, but I was down there having a party. I was drinking all the time when I was down there. So I was just like messing with the, the protesters or, you know, just giving like smart ass comments, talking about like polar bears when they were talking about Syria. I lived there twice, but at the first time I was in DC, the second time when I first went to Silver Spring and when Trump won, wasn't as organized as I saw even the aftermath of the George Floyd riots, a little more chaotic. And I remember we were standing, my wife knew I was down there and she was so worried about me going down there. Cause she, I mean, I just go to witness it. She's like, don't go to like K and 13th because there's trouble at K and 13th. So I went right to K and 13th, a Wells Fargo right next to a Starbucks and they'd broken all the windows and I've seen real Antifa. I've seen the fake Antifa and I've seen the hangarounds. A lot of them, if there's a small group of them, they like walk in the middle of the street and they always knock over garbage cans. And then those little free newspaper metal machines that are on every street corner, they always pull them in the middle of the road. But when there's a bigger group of them is when they start to get a little uh, more of a mob mentality. Because that's what happens when you're down there. Like you get that feeling, like you're the fight or flight feeling, or like you just know something's going to like pop off. You can like feel it. Like, like you know what a fight's about to happen at a bar. You can like feel it in the air. The cops have like this tactic of keeping the crowds away from each other. They'll block and DC blocks are long. You've been down there, especially downtown. They'll do like divide and conquer and move you around to try to keep the groups separated. And eventually they get back together. And then you have like 30 minutes of violence and then they break you up again with the, with the tear gas or the just them marching through like Roman soldiers with their shields divide you block off the street and make one group and make you all go around. But for the half hour that I was down there, like when a secret service or police pimped out Tahoe, they all drive Tahoes down there. Tahoes and Suburbans. These guys were just straight throwing bricks at the cars as they drove by, like, like three feet away, just slamming br- bricks against the cop cars. The cops would just fly in and out. They really didn't bother the group that I was like following around. But what I really noticed, besides watching the videos of, of like aerial views of the riots in other places, when I went down to see the aftermath of the George Floyd we were talking about before, they have people who drive around in box trucks full of supplies. So whenever there's a, the protesters stop to yell at a building or yell at a group of people, the trucks pull up, they open the back, and there's water and food and things like that for the people. But at night, there's different trucks coming in because that's where they, cause they don't bring all the equipment on the metro with them. But you see these guys, and there'll be 15 guys with – it looks like they're carrying big shields themselves that they made out of plywood or whatever. In, in their helmets, in their black pajamas, and they'll march down the street. Mm-hmm. And, and during the inauguration, I also saw the random like white liberal people that you would think that would be down there during the day. And they would all like lock their arms together and like block so people couldn't get through. 
and they would just form a line across the street and let nobody pass. Doesn't matter what side you were on, they would just they would just block the road. Did you ever see like pallets of bricks? Not personally, but I've also wondered where they get all this stuff from. Now, it's interesting that that they follow them around with box trucks. I mean, that's their supply line, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Do these people own box trucks and own delis and do this? Or do you feel like it's just a little bit more complicated than that? It's not as complicated as it really sounds. I mean, they're getting funding from somewhere, right? I mean, it's not like the people out marching in the streets are bringing cases of water to fill the trucks up before they go out and do, you know, do their dirt. So they're getting funding from somewhere. Now, you can point the fingers and say, you know, who brought this and who brought what. But I have seen random pallets of bricks on street corners, just not like the same day as a protest. But I know that like people will put things down and not ask questions about it and leave it there. But I can't say for a fact that I like there was a pile of bricks that one day I was at school. I went back the next day and they were gone because when I was in grad school, my grad school was right next to the White House. I was like six blocks away. So you were you were an intern for Congress. You've been in the Capitol building. You've been on the House floor. Yes, I also got to go up inside the dome and outside the dome on the top. So because no building in the district can be higher than uh, Lady 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 Liberty is on top. Lady Justice, Lady Liberty is on top of the Capitol building. I was the highest person in the city for a second. So we went we went there and with uh, Congressman Chris Smith, we visited his office. I went with uh, the Jar of Hope and Jim Raffone, the guys that we went to Nepal with. Um, Chris Smith invited us down, and we were presented with flags that flew over the Capitol building on... You can do that. Anyone can do that. You just call your congressman. And that was one of my jobs, was to go to the flag office and help facilitate that process for my congressman. Okay, okay. But it was so far away from my office, because everything's connected underground. That like, I was gone for a good 40 minutes just to get there and back. And it's so crazy because, so I took my son, took him out of school for the day because I figured it's probably the best civics lesson that you can give a, a nine-year-old. And we got the tour of the Capitol and got to walk around and go outside of it with the congressman and uh, and see the frescoes up close uh, and and also ride on the subway underneath. It's like, <laughs> it's the most silly thing. It's like a hundred foot walk, but they got this electric trolley underneath for the old people because everybody in Congress is old as shit. <laughs> yeah, to go to the Senate office. Yeah, I was only on that twice. <laughs> oh man, that was funny. I looked down here and you could see you could see the end of it, but there's this electric trolley that goes. You're like, why is it even here? Remember when when the when Ted Cruz shut down the government and everybody was on furlough? I got to go in. I've only I mean I. Interns are, don't get furloughed. You can go in if you want. So I figured, why the hell not? But the, tr- the, the tour you're talking about, when you went into the Capitol, did they show you the star that's at like the center of the city? Did they say step over it or step on it? Um, they had it roped off, actually. They didn't want anybody touching it. Oh, uh, okay. So one of my jobs, um, well, what, I never really got to do it because I didn't learn the tour well enough. But I went with one of the guys in the office who had been there. He gave a tour to some constituents from the district. And he's like, you step over it or it's, it's bad luck to step on it. And then I happened to be walking through there like four days later and some other intern from some other office was like, step on it. It's good luck. <laughs> you, you post a lot of funny shit online. Yeah. And I, I love it personally. I think some of it's, it's really clever. But it, 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 it paradizes, I think, the current state of affairs. Now, do you think that what we're experiencing as people 
as part of this government is really like there's nothing new under the sun. This is just now our experience. And in, in 60 years, our kids will have a similar experience to it. Or do you feel like this is a unique part of history and people really need to be paying attention because shit's about to go down? I think that it's more than business as usual. I think that it's been progressively getting worse as it goes. I mean, I grew up, I mean, you know my dad, I grew up a hardcore Republican, and I defended it like a hardcore Republican would. And then until I started talking to uh, a buddy of mine, he ran for Congress. I was living in Warren County, so my district was different than Mont Olive. But he ran as a libertarian, and we used to just get into discussions. You know, he played chess, I played chess, so we, we would just have these talks about you know, freedom and liberty. And it turns out he ran under the libertarian ticket. In the beginning, I used all my usual arguments, uh, you know, to defend that the Republicans were right and everybody else was wrong. And he would show me something and I would look, all right, maybe they're not so much. And the more and more I started to dig into it, the more and more I started to realize that they're just as bad as the, as the DNC. And it's not when I say Democrats, or Republicans, it's not the people, it's the party. Is it though? Is it though? Because I feel like anymore it's becoming the people. I I don't remember who who said this quote. I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it has something to do with when you criticize the system, people take it personally because they identify so closely with the system, and they don't want to hear that what you're. That was the end of the quote. So what they don't want to hear is no one wants to be wrong, and no one wants to be that wrong. And I was wrong a lot. I was wrong about a lot of shit that I thought. Right. And then some of the things that I thought, pro-Second Amendment, pro-First Amendment, things like that, things that the Republicans are supposedly fighting for, I realized that they really weren't. Or they said they were, but they really didn't do anything. And if you look at the laws that get passed, are they really different than the Republican or Democrat laws? It's kind of the same. They're both increasing spending. They're both increasing the deficit. And they've made rules if you to make it almost impossible for a third party to even get involved. Right, and that's intentional. It's, it is 100% intentional. I know, I remember I used, my dad supported, um, I think he was supported Phil Rizzo at first for governor. Okay. Right, I saw your, I listened to your interview with him. I was supporting, I don't remember how to pronounce it, it was Mele or Mele, it was M-E-L-E. It was, it was the libertarian candidate. And I'm... Um, you know, talking to my dad, and he's like, well, why don't you just support the Republican? And I'm like, and I was going through the list of things of where that's not really what they're doing. And we were getting into some of how campaigns get their money. And in New Jersey, if your party raises $5 million, the state matches that $5 million. So your tax-paying dollars will, because both sides get the five, so now your taxes now pay 10 to either party, or five to each side. If you support them or not, they get that, because they get that kind of money. And they have the infrastructure to go out and get the signatures, which the rules keep changing and making it harder and harder for a smaller organization to even get into a debate. I mean, you put one of these libertarian candidates up on there with Trump and Biden, he's going to tear them apart. He's going to start talking policy and economics and things they're not going to have answers for. I feel like as we get older, the high, our hierarchical method of prioritizing things changes right when you're young it's very surface level and i think as you get older you start looking at the deeper and deeper things and internally making changes 
you know, there is certainly less influence from my social circle now that I'm 43 and have a wife and three children and a home and responsibilities. So it's, I feel like it's easier for me to focus and change on the important things. Um, you know, being a better person and trying harder to be a better husband and to be a better dad and to be a better coach and the things that bring me fulfillment and, and, and help me kind of even the tables because I've been extraordinarily blessed. I've noticed that, that my values are changing when it comes to politics and political representation. I don't know if they're necessarily libertarian, though I would characterize them as slightly more, I, I don't want to say progressive, and I don't want to say moderate, but I feel like, I feel like moderate is a better word between those two. You know, it's easy for me to say that I'm, I'm all for states' rights and individual responsibility and things like that, but that doesn't make me a libertarian. That just makes me a pretty cool neighbor. Uh, Roe versus Wade. I am pro-choice. That's me. Because it's not really my damn business what you want to do. The philosophy, the argument comes down to when does life begin, right? At, w at what point are you killing a baby? But at the same time, I don't care. You have to live with the decision that you made. You know, it's your bed. No matter how you got there, the situation is what to do about it. And if the choice for you personally is to have an abortion, then that's your choice, not mine. So I have no problem with a, a woman's right to choose. I just don't feel that the government should be involved in anything when it comes to making especially health choices. I baited you with that, and I'm and I'm glad that you took it because I I feel the same way. Um, now I am pro life, but I feel exactly the same way. That's just basically the foundational tenet of my morality, right? Now that doesn't mean that circumstances don't exist. I I don't have a crystal ball. I can't protect the future, but you know I feel like I lean more towards the benefit of the doubt. Doesn't make any difference. Because it doesn't matter to me what anybody else does. I think that you shouldn't care what I do as long as it doesn't interfere with your reasonable enjoyment of all of the great things about this country. Just don't care about, it just doesn't matter to me. I don't want to pay for your decisions, but I also understand a, you know, a healthcare system, you know, might include certain things that's way above my pay grade. What I think is interesting and I'm not a political scholar, but the way that I understand it is that if you have baked into our constitution, which I don't believe is a living, breathing document, there's mechanisms in there to change it. So there we go, right? I mean, we can always alter it if we, if we really wanted to. Um, you can't change the rules of the game in the middle of the game. This is kind of what we have to go by. But I think to codify in our constitution that the federal government makes certain health choices for us, is a, I think that that really does something to degrade what America was really founded on, which was states' rights, and that we're a republic. We're, we're a group of, of governments that work together underneath the federal government. As much as it sucks, and, and I understand, but as much as it sucks to have to drive to a different state for a procedure and, a, and the red tape that exists within other states, I do, though, believe that it is it is their right 
under their roof to make whatever rules they want. And inevitably, Correct. some states are going to lean one way and some states are going to lean the other way. I get it that it's inconvenience. You know, so were tolls on New Jersey roads. Now, I, I don't mean to minimize the importance of, of that decision or that procedure. My point is really that what we did was we actually left it back to the states to decide whether or not that should be a thing you know, illegal or legal. I don't like how it's become a battleground where on paper, and we laid it out already, you're pro-choice, I'm pro-life. I mean, if we were to draw two columns on a sheet of paper and, you know, those two headings, my name would go under one and your name would go under the other. And I think simpler minds would assume that that is a battleground right? Or a potential battleground for us to judge each other on so many things that it doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of what I hate about it, because I believe in a woman's right to choose. Personally, I lean one way, but it doesn't, it's inconsequential. I, I can't have a dog in this fight, or at least I don't yet. But I, I don't, I don't appreciate how similarly with like the vaccines and shit, people write two columns on a sheet of paper and they're like, everybody on this side of the sheet, put on this blue penny. Everybody on this side of the sheet, put on this red penny. And I want you guys to go at it until the death when there's like, there's so many other things that really unite us. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, the abortion debate really has no business coming up between me and you. Under most circumstances, we will never have that conversation because we don't need to. And little by little, we're just bloodying each other up. Now, is that a divide and conquer strategy, do you think, on their part? Or is it just more of a marketing strategy? I think strategy it's more media? of a sleight of hand trick. Because if they keep us divided over guns or um, CRT in schools or no matter how you feel, just the argument in general, enough to keep us focused on five individual things or how much people hate Trump or hate, you, you, you're going to vote a certain they want you to vote based on these trivial things because the rest of the stuff they're doing behind the scenes is not talked about because no one's arguing that you'd never repeat besides inflation being the issue that it was no one even heard really about inflation beforehand no one pays attention to the deficit that we're racking up the debt of the country which if you look at it is like 31 trillion dollars but if you really look at it, it's more like $165 trillion based on all the future payments they owe for pensions and Social Security and all those things that are guaranteed money to go out. Like, where does that end? Eventually, where does that end? I mean, we're not going to pay it all off. <laughs> I don't think that that'll ever happen. I think the people that we owe it to will end up somehow having to conquer them in some way. I'm going to screw up some of the, the finer details of this, right? But it goes down between... The way the government does its business, right? With the mo the uh, MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, which people who agree with that basically think that having a debt isn't a big deal because you can just print more money. And the government doesn't have to worry about paying off its debts because it controls the what we use to what we use to pay our taxes in. They force you to use dollars to pay your taxes. So they control the surplus of money. So they also force the world to pay for oil in the American dollar too. So what what kind of control? Well, that was kind of now. This is something I can't explain well, but I can give you the the gist of it. I couldn't read the book because it was fucking huge. It's called like the Island of Doctor Jekyll. Jekyll Island is off of the Carolinas somewhere. And after World War II, a bunch of the bankers got together after the West had won and America was the top dog. 
and they had the most stable currency at the time, which was still on the gold standard back then. You know, it's really interesting because the Federal Reserve is a separate entity from the U.S. government, right? Or it's supposed to be. It's it's a it's a private it's a private company. It's a private company, and what's interesting is so with with fractional lending, basically the banks. For every dollar that's deposited in the bank, they can loan out 10 of those dollars, which is why you can't go to the bank and say, I'd like to clear my account of the $800,000 in. They'd be like, we just don't have it. Well, what do you mean you don't have it? Well, because this is, you know, we, we can't handle an order that big so quick. And it's because they can lend out more than they can, and that, you know, that, that earns interest and and everything else. But really what it comes down to is it's the tangible version of a proof of work economy, you know, much like Bitcoin is. And, and Bitcoin is the digital version of that, but Bitcoin is proof of work, not proof of stake. And with, I, I explain inflation to my son, you know, if I had a gold brick and I gave you a piece of paper and I said this, you know, that brick is worth one of these you know what if i printed two is are they worth just as much he said no they're worth half as much i said that's why when that's why prices are going up is because there's just way more money out there i, I don't know in america our government's trying to get in on the crypto thing and i think that it's a but it's funny because it's like watching a bunch of old guys that can't even log into their email on their phone talk about Bitcoin and, and how they're going to regulate Bitcoin and do all of this other stuff. And I almost get the sense that they don't realize that you can't regulate Like that's not even, that's you're, you're, you're trying to pretend to be important in this equation and you are simply just not even relevant. Some of the, the I saw an article about what the government plans to do or who's coming in to help them establish a Bitcoin. And it's like the leaders of Wells Fargo, the, the types of people who sit on the Fed are the type of people that are going to help them with the crypto. Well, the head of the FDA, it, it used to be the head of Monsanto. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I remember when during when uh, when Bush went to war uh, overseas, right, started with Afghanistan, went to Iraq. Everyone was yelling about um, Halliburton, right, because Cheney was connected to Halliburton. That's where the Republicans had their people. but now. It's Raytheon and their connections go up to the administration now. And what's also funny about that is 20 years ago, it wasn't just there was more Raytheons and more Halliburtons and more Boeings and more Lockheeds. And now we're down to, you know, four or five, depending if you're going for airplanes or tanks, you know, it's, it's down to a handful of companies who are getting the, the government spending to buy these type of uh, items and then you know, really boxing out competition. So you got Elon Musk pulled Twitter. If Trump should get his account back, he did. Uh, now you're starting to see certain hit pieces in the media about Elon Musk. I mean, I personally love the guy. I think that he's yeah, awesome. Like him too. I think that he's good for civilization. Um, I could see him winning for president if he ran. I don't think he wants that job, nor do I think that I want him to have that job. You know, he's got some interesting remarks about what the government would look like, should look like on Mars when we colonize it. And um, though I agree with it, I don't think that we're ready. I mean, I also don't know what his opinion is on what kind of government we should have. But I think that a lot of the powers that be really want, they really want a, a one world government or at least a hemispherical government. I mean, how much do you agree with that? I agree that the powers that be want to stay the powers that be 
and they manipulate the rules to keep themselves there. No matter which party does it, because they do it in their own way. But even if they lose, they're still on top of their sides. So if it's not one, it's not the other. It's, it is the other. The thing about Twitter, it is technically a private company. So the best way to keep it as free as possible is to have someone other than the government. But then you fall into the problem of whatever Musk doesn't like, he kicks off. So if you don't like that, it, with that argument, and someone makes a different Twitter, and everybody who hates Musk goes to a different Twitter, and then you're just going to end up having two Twitters, one completely focused on the other. and one, You know what I mean? Like when Trump tried to start hit, the only people that went to it were Trumpers. Like uh, whatever that was called. I don't remember the name of his app, but his his wannabe Facebook. So what I like, what I do love about Twitter is the, the fast exchange of information um, and that people are allowed to say basically whatever whatever they want. Do I want Musk in control of it and his people? You know, not necessarily, but I know I don't want the government in charge of it. Right. We know that social media can, can sway elections too. I mean, that's been proven. Well, yeah, the, you, you've seen that like, the lies spread faster than the truth. And then the problem with the lie is that people only remember the lie. When someone gets fact-checked or proven wrong, like how many, how, how, how many people still think that Trump was the original one to put people in cages at the border when it was an Obama practice? I think that's confirmation bias, though, right, and, and, and cognitive dissonance. I think that people, I think that people know better or can be persuaded if they knew that that's what – I mean, listen, the border's a disaster. We, we kind of know that. There hasn't been much talk about that. You know, we know that that's falling apart. I think that we look weak on the world stage, incredibly weak on the world stage. I think that if China was going to invade Taiwan, that, you know, now is really the time to do it. I think it's a good thing that there wasn't really a red wave during this midterm election, because I think that that really, that allows us really to see if these policies are all garbage uh, without really owning their failure. We get to see this play out. It might actually be better for the Republicans come come the next presidential election. What, what I think is that if we were to find a planet in a galaxy far, far away with a civilization that was, I don't know, even just 400 years older than ours, I think that we would see many similarities in terms of, of people and community and things like that, provided that the governments were similar. But I don't think that they would be similar because if we fast forwarded it, I think we would find one people with one language, uh, one currency. I, I don't think that there would be borders. Somebody would have won already. And it's interesting to kind of use the thought experiment like, okay, so if we're filling in that timeline as we speak, really, where does this go from here? Right. I mean, can we break the the world up into different regions and say that, you know, Asia and Europe and the Middle East and the United States, Africa, South America, like, are, are we looking at another world war? How do you think we get to where we're going? As opposed to like it being America, I think it would be the Western way of thinking um, that if you, you know, go back to like Adam Smith or classical liberalism, which is kind of where I'm at, where, you know, rights are important. The smallest minority is the individual. So the people who originally, who became the West, even though it's, it's kind of altered since then, um, Ray Dalio, 
is um, he right has a, a a great. I haven't read the book, but he he does a good YouTube video on his book. It's like forty five minutes long, and the book's called The Changing World Order. It goes into if you look at the powerhouses throughout history, all the way back to like Persia. He takes a bunch of examples and then has explains how he comes across this measurement. But you know, before the Americans, it was the English, and before the English, you know, it was the Dutch or the Spanish or whoever controlled mostly trade and was the powerhouse coming up, eventually you'll hit a peak. And on the way down, you run into a rising power. And his argument is that China is that rising power. So eventually you'll come to a confrontation. And on the way down, if you get defeated, you can continue your rise to the top because once you won the war, you get the spoils which is why reserve currency, that's what it is. That's why America became the reserve currency, just like the English before them and the Dutch and the Spanish before them. When they were in charge and had all the money, they lented it out and they overextended themselves to a point where their debts were so bad that kind of situation where America is now that we're declining while others are rising to catch us. And the American military is gearing to fight China. If you look at the, the, the new tactics they're taking on or the new equipment they're building, it's, it's to work in Southeast Asia. It's mostly helicopters, missiles. Listen, China wants Taiwan. My estimation is that they have to do it and keep the infrastructure intact because all that is Taiwan is semiconductors. And, and geez, if China could acquire that, that would be incredible. Plus, you know, they want the territory back. From what I understand, Taiwan is notoriously impossible to invade because of the terrain. But China's got passenger ferries that are equipped to transport tanks. I think that China is capable right now of taking Taiwan. And I don't know this any more than I would be looking at a board game, because what the hell do I know? But I feel like China could do exactly what they need to do. It's really just a matter of timing. And they're, they're notoriously strategic and methodical and patient. I mean, they've got a hundred year plan. They're, they're in no rush to get this shit done. They are putting infrastructure in Africa. I guess we can say they've modern day, they've colonialized most of Africa. You know, they've got, they've got world domination in their sights. There's no question about it. The difference between the way hypothetically that America invests in countries like Africa and the Chinese invest in countries like Africa, but they're belt and road initiative, right? The Chinese will come in to make a deal. And if you need a dam built or you need a well dug or you need help getting mining, they come in, they set it up, they bring their own people and they run it for you. The Americans, because it's supposed to be private businesses investing in foreign companies to help them build it from the ground, is that it's more of a, we'll show you how to do it process. So at the same time, you're training your workforce to get out of whatever stage in your civilization might be, which is why the argument about sweatshops is, is beneficial in third world countries. So it's not having an EPA, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of industrial revolution that they've got to go through where they can't be bothered with, you know, not burning certain things because it would be prohibitive. Right. How are you going to tell an up and coming country that they can't manufacture something because they have to go green when the only people that can afford to go green, going green costs a shitload of money, especially because the technology isn't where we want it to be. The market needs to bring the technology to us and you take advantage of it. If the market is asking for better batteries, 
you can't have the government go build batteries for you because they're going to build their battery and you're going to be stuck with that battery. But if you let 10 people build the battery, they're going to find better ways, cheaper to do it. You know, it's just, it's the, it's, 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 it's capitalism. It's capitalism, but don't get confused when like I'm a capitalist, but I not necessarily pro business because capitalism is like, again, the voluntary exchange between you and me to achieve our maximum happiness. Now, if your happiness is making a million dollars, your happiness is, you know, helping others it makes no difference. You'll do what's best for you. But by doing what's best for you, you end up doing it's it's the best thing for me to work honorably with you. So we both achieve a higher level of happiness. You know, that's kind of simply saying when you get into the theory and that when the government gets involved in business, there's no, there's no way to fix something. It's always a series of trade-offs. If you do something here, it might be a short term, a short term help, like uh, how raising the, raising the minimum wage helps out for a little bit, but you have problems down the line because it's not a long-term goal, but it's the combination of them messing with so many things that you end up having the, the problem. The more the government gets involved, the more the government spends, and the more they spend, the more that becomes part of your GDP, and the more the government is spending on that GDP is less that the market has the control of what's being made with that GDP. Because the government needs tanks and hand grenades, the government's going to make tank, tanks and hand grenades, and it's not going to make straws or lemonade powder or whatever the hell the other people need. The market, nothing can tell you what people want like the market can. Because people will demand it and ask for it. What what difference do you put between pro capitalism and, and pro small business? The problem with being pro, I mean, you look at capitalism like evil capitalism is that a company will do whatever it can to maximize its profit, even when it comes to the case of lobbying extra hard or doing something under the books, you know, quid pro quo type of stuff. That is when you stop becoming capitalists and you start becoming part you see, cronyism and corruption because it's what happens because you know because people left unchecked will do evil right so the government's job is to keep us protected from evil which will eventually come but the problem we have now is that no one's really checking the government when they're doing things i mean i feel like our voting system kind of intended to have the solution to that baked in I mean, I think the easy answer to that question is then just vote the people out. So then why not just vote those people out? Well, here's the thing. And this is where, um, again, where the two parties work together, think of um, gerrymandering, right? Say you t you have 50 people who are all voters in your district, right? And you, yeah, so you have five columns or five lines with 10 columns. And the top 30 people are green and the bottom 20 are red. So hypothetically, if it takes 10 people to get a representative, you would have three and two. The way you can cut the columns is that you can either get control of all five or cut the columns to give the minority the control based on, you ever see the map of voting districts? Yeah. You ever wonder why they're so out of whack? Yeah. It's because they're trying to keep a certain majority in that district. And it's a tactic that's been used by governments for a long time. Think of, and here's a perfect example, is the Middle East, right? The Middle East is carved out by a bunch of borders put by guys who won World War II, right? But if you look at the populations inside many of those countries, you'll see kind of a two, um, 
two to one ratio, but the one is usually the, the group that's in power because they were put in power when the, the Europeans left or the Turks left or whoever came out, losers of the war were cut up by, by the victors. If you can keep them constantly fighting, you can keep your control inside that state. Are you implying that that's why there's so much garbage going on over in the Middle East? Not all of it, but a lot of it has to do with intertribal rivalries that are stuck in the same government based on lines that they wouldn't necessarily have drawn if they had to break up their own government. Like, why would you cut the Kurdish population in half? You know what I mean? Half, half of it in Iraq, half of it in Iran and all that type of stuff. It's purposely designed when they broke the countries up to keep the minority in power and to suppress the majority. It's silly to even think that that whole nation building, you know, old American nation building was so unsuccessful over in Afghanistan and over in Iraq is because there, there was a certain homeostasis over there. We weren't going in there and liberating a people. Perhaps that argument could be made for the Kurds. They knew, everybody knew their place over there. So you can't go into Iraq and say, oh, by the way, the party that hasn't been in charge in the last 60 years, we're going to give them the same voting power that the party who's been in charge for the lender. Like, wait a second, like, that's not how shit around here works. Like, that, that that's never going to work. We want to kill everybody in this room. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to meet in the middle anywhere. This is our stuff. It's amazing how fast we forget about things like ISIS and the timing of ISIS. Do you think that that was just a spontaneous men's club that got together and said we're gonna we're gonna start causing shit over in syria or do you think it was a little more intentional than that all those groups get funding get funding from somebody right at some point i mean they might have formed under you know we don't like this leader and we're gonna form with a bunch of guys that we're kind of okay with and then you know someone's got a cia CIA connection or kgb connection or you know whatever the chinese secret service might be or even Mossad if it's you know trying to kill iran at some point they're going to get funding to to grow and cause trouble if that is that is their goal and if they feel, see an opportunity like a syrian civil war or civil disobedience or government weakness and see the opportunity to pounce and maybe establish your own piece of the pie or take someone else's piece completely i mean look at I mean, look with look at it with um with osama bin laden right we funded him in the beginning and then got upset when he turned on us when we you know kept meddling in everybody's business not that I'm, you know, going to justify 9/11. It was a horrible tragedy, but they told us they were coming. They told us why they were coming. You keep meddling in our government. Like, think about if we weren't the number one power, right? People forget that it's easy to look at other countries being in the position that we're in, not having to deal with their position. And if a foreign power was in here fucking around all day, you know, I'd probably want to crash a plane into them too. Oh, I, you know, I, I can. I can sympathize, I think. I don't remember Syria really being a bad place from the news and, and from whatever I consumed up until we needed to fight ISIS over in Syria, right? And I think that that was interesting, is that we really caused the shit over there. Syria is not an American ally, but it was part of the gas pipeline that ran from Iran into Russia. The Russians rent a piece of property from the Syrians, and it's their only deep water port that doesn't freeze in the winter. So having a, a port that can handle, you know, the biggest of ships, military, naval ships, is important to them. Um, and then them not having that 
is important to, to, to us or the West if you want to you know, pick sides. Is that why you think we decided to get involved over there? Or is that we wanted to push Russia out of that deep water port? Yeah, because Assad is or was an ally of the Russians. The long-term goal is to stop Russian aggression, and you deny them access to that port, then that's that that's big time for their able to control, project power, and protect their shipping. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think that they try so hard to make Russia the boogeyman in everything? It, like it's the the constant proxy wars, right? It's like even like in the Ukraine, the reason that the Ukrainians are were able to counterattack is the artillery rocket system that is able to shoot behind the front line, and then you know five miles back is the reserve line, five miles back is the supply line, and then behind that is the command center. And we have the ability, the Americans can give the Ukrainians the ability to shoot over a couple of of the defensive lines and hit the supplies and the command post in the back. But we've purposely not given them missiles that could reach even farther back into Russia where they're, where they're launching the attack out of the reason they're purposely not giving that to them is that if an American weapon was used on Russian soil, even in the hands of the Ukrainians, is that enough to piss off Putin even more? It's like that delicate game of, all right, you're not technically in there fighting us, but you have people showing the Ukrainians, how to use these weapons. You've got assets in country supporting the war that they chose to. It's not an unjustified war. I can they say it's an unjustified war because, again, uh, Osama bin Laden, Putin has said, stop encroaching on my borders. Supposedly, during when, when, when Russia broke up, right, back after the Berlin Wall fell, some of their nuclear assets were in Ukraine. But Ukraine is no longer part of Russia, so it was like, oh shit, what do we do? There was supposed to be an under-the-table deal worked out. The Ukrainians will give the nukes back if you respect their border integrity, and which the Ukrainians, which the Russians obviously haven't been doing. You know, Crimea is a start. They also went into Georgia and um, what is the other little piece they went into? There was like three prep wars before Ukraine. The way those wars went. They thought Ukraine was going to be easier. They go in to take over some people and annex them, like they tried to do with that failed election a few months ago. But that's what worked in Georgia and worked in Crimea. They came in, liberated them, and their own decisions to come out. They thought that it would be a lot easier. Um, they had, I mean, NATO, we swooped in and propped them up real quick. Uh, but I also think that much like Vietnam, you know, once you start televising wars, now you have them fought in the court of public opinion. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that Russia could have wiped their ass with Ukraine already. And yeah, Ru Ukraine's putting up a valiant fight and they're protecting their country. But the fact of the matter is, is that regardless of how many conscripts are going to be poorly armed and equipped, Russia has one missile that can pave the entire fucking country of Ukraine and be done with it. But they can't do that because that's going to cost them everything. But they can win it, right? They certainly can win that war. But the only thing that can end this war is if Vladimir Putin dies, okay? And then there's a regime change that you can bet your ass we're going to be in there like fucking Yeltsin and make sure that whoever goes in there is going to be at least Western or NATO friendly. But we really need a social revolution. That's the only thing that's going to move Russia is a change in power. This way, the new guy can come in and be like, I'm putting a stop to it right now. There's been reports of Putin being real sick. 
there's been reports of Putin falling down the stairs and shit in his pants and all that. What, what do you what do you think's going to happen there? Well, before the counteroffensive really took hold, there was talk of Putin wanting out, and he needs some way to save face with his people. But at that time, he still controlled the whole eastern chunk that they had carved out. The the terms of the deal are, you know. If you go home, maybe you can keep what you got. And the Ukrainians were, but with the counteroffensive starting to take hold, the Ukrainians were like, no, forget it. We're going to try to push this as far as we can. And now they're even pushing towards crime, trying to get Crimea back itself. So maybe if they threaten Crimea enough that Putin feels he might lose it, but he still wouldn't be saving enough face. I think it is interesting that. Ukraine hasn't attacked military targets inside of Russia yet. I think that that would be fair game. I I, I appreciate their restraint in a certain way because, um, though I think that's completely fair, uh, it's part of the rules, right? But they're being gracious enough not to attack military targets inside of Russia because that will then draw, inevitably, in many different ways, that will draw the rest of the world into a conflict over there. What, what say you? I mean, do you think that they can outlast Putin? Not without the the Western help, with the influx of the weapons, the money, the supplies, and keeping them on edge. I mean, what this war did show is that the Russians aren't really as tough as they look. Yeah, they have a lot of, hypothetically, we're just, you know, just for argument's sake, like they had 1,500 tanks, right? But 1,000 of them are old as shit. And the 500 that are new, only half of them are in service, and only half of those even have all the fancy bells and whistles that all the American and all the Western Alliance stuff has. So they weren't even bringing in their best equipment because it's just they didn't have it. And then they showed that they tried to – they used the tactic similar in – the invasion of Baghdad. I think it's called a rolling thunder. When the Americans took over Baghdad, right, They, the Marines or the first recon, whoever the guys were, had like three targets. It was like the airport, a uh, very strategic highway intersection, and something else. And when the Americans went in and took it and the airfield, they opened up the supply line and they were good to go. The Russians moved so fast and didn't cause the havoc they had hoped and then when the supply lines couldn't catch up, they were stuck. And then even the stuff they had didn't work or didn't, wasn't good enough for the job they needed to get done. Now that winter is here, especially over there, that it will probably be kind of slow for a little bit. And they'll settle into the winter and try to ride it out. Because what Putin has, has been doing is been striking key civilian targets that he was avoiding before, such as power stations and water, to make it harder on the people who have to bear the unbelievable winter that happens in that part of the world. Because Ukraine, geographically, Ukraine is in a very good area. It's got, you know, it's relatively flat, or it's got the plains, and it produces all that grain. It can feed. Russia's used to having Ukraine feed it with all that grain. So that's one of the one of the reasons they want, besides power and control, is to get the power back from that food supply and that part of the land. Because so much of Russia is, you know, once you go east of the Ural Mountains, only a third of the country lives over there. 
Everybody else lives on the eastern, the eastern European area of Russia. You know, what we haven't done yet is we haven't fought a proxy war against China. Do you think that that would predicate any kind of conflict? Or, or, or do you feel like we'd be kicking too big of a hornet's nest? And, and I, neither one of us would be willing to, to take the first shot. We, we never fully answered the China question. We kept getting sidetracked. Um, you brought up the 100-year plan, which was, was Mao in 1949, right? So technically in 2049 is the 100-year plan. And that is kind of based on before the opium wars in China. China was very closed off to the rest of the world. But mentally, they still they consider themselves the center of the world. Like China is the breadbasket of civilization just like the persians that which is now iran they still consider themselves persian because persia used to be the shit you know however many years ago it's like a a thing of natural of, of national pride and they were so taken advantage of in the west by the colonial powers and who was fighting for the, during the opium wars that when mao came in you know their goal is to get back on top and step one is Taiwan. Open himself up. Well, open himself up to the West too, right? That was part of their plan. Yeah, yeah. They were very closed off to everyone, which is why they eventually stopped all that. Like the, they're not so much communists as they were before, because they brought in a lot of capitalist ideas. Even though the state runs the the capital, is not you know there's not much private business over there. Um, they still took on. You know, we know we have to trade. We know we have to build shit and 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 to do all that. So, are you familiar with the nine dash line? You know, I've heard of it. When you when you talk about it, I'll remember it. China has a couple of steps that they want to do to assert their power, especially in Southeast Asia, which is their backyard. The nine dash line is a line through the South China Sea that China is claiming is their property. Ignoring rules, like the common rules are, you know, 10 miles off your coast is technically your stuff. So if you find oil in a certain area offshore, it's yours. There's not really an accepted set of lines because Indonesia has their claim and Taiwan has their claim and Vietnam has their claim and all the countries over there claim a certain area. It's kind of an area that they accept. And in the middle of it is the open ocean, which allows the Americans to still be in there. Because according to the world's rules, it's not China's territory. But the nine dash line, uh, if you look it up, you'll see, you'll, you'll come, it'll come right up. There's a line through Southeast Asia that encompasses Taiwan. And it's where China's next step of influence is going to reach which is why they're building little islands in that area they're literally building islands and putting putting airports on it is and they're, and they're stacking them with anti-air missiles and anti-ship missiles yeah br- brilliant it's absolutely brilliant what they're doing which is why america is focusing less of tanks and more on helicopters quick reaction teams missiles to fight the, a, a, a new island hopping campaign in southeast asia and I think that if China, China will most likely make the first move. If we're if we're tied down somewhere else like Ukraine, they would seize advantage. Um, and a story that didn't get reported much is when Ukraine war broke out, Azerbaijan invaded Armenia. They've been arguing over for however many years because those guys hate each other. 
the West supports one side and you know Russia support the other side. So they went in and had a quick war when I believe Azerbaijan kept the land after the the peace deal that they made. And I mean, it's just the other side of the, the continent. There, it's right. You know, they're, we're not talking thousands of miles apart, but no one even knew about it because it was such a little a little thing over there. China will keep pressing their limits, and China's got its hand everywhere, right? So they don't like they don't like India. India doesn't like them. India doesn't like the Pakistanis, and the Pakistanis don't really like China, but they both hate India, and they're all nuclear, right? So there's a constant battle over there, and India doesn't really like Russia, and Russia doesn't like India, but since Russia has so much embargoes and and rules since the war, they can't trade. They're backdooring gasoline and fuel to India at like thirty cents under the uh, you know above asking price, and the Indians are buying it up because they need to do all their stuff because they're their economy started to shoot through the roof and they're manufacturing and gearing up for, you know, whatever the beef is they have with Pakistan that I can't remember after so many years, but it's over the, the Kashmir region. China, until unless something happens in their country, like the, they're tired of getting beat on for not making iPhones fast enough. Well, i Apple's thinking about pulling out. That'll have consequences. I think natural disaster, God forbid, something should happen to Taiwan, natural disaster, China is there immediately to render aid under martial law. Yeah, we'll, we'll render aid. You need you need our help, so we're here. Humanitarian, yep. And, and they're just going to push their way right in because Taiwan military, they can't fuck around. They're going to be too busy running water to villagers and this and that. There's got to be something, you know, and I, and I don't think that there's... Dude, we are downwind of China, okay? We're just... Think of that. We're downwind of China. Matter of fact, World War II, Japan actually had sent over uh, ordinance on fucking parachutes that floated in the jet stream. And there was a report. Hot air balloons. Yeah. yeah. And, and one of them actually, I don't think any of them ever hurt anybody, but one of them detonated in Washington State or something. I mean, think of the possibilities. Many areas, China, because they spent, they caught up so quickly because from for steal from stealing trade secrets like look at their new planes like the whatever their their version of the wrap of the f-22 is it looks identical the the engine is like identical to the rolls-royce engine that they stole from another plane but the difference between now i don't i'm, I'm, I'm sure that the americans and other nations probably steal trade secrets too but we but america's got you know darpa the yeah, skunk works so maybe that's where we kind of feed our stolen information to, and then they then they give it out to the private sector like they do with those ro- like the the robots. So when China's cut up, they've like their work in missiles and their their ability to have been working on the same strategy for so long, where America we keep shifting focus on where we're going to fight our wars. You know, after World War II, you know, it was all about it's all about tanks, and you know, Vietnam showed that you can't really use tanks except in the city fighting, and Korea. Uh, except for that one battle, wasn't really a tank war. Um, and now, with infantry units who can carry a tank killer on their shoulder, or a drone they can put into the... I remember doing a report in elementary school about how soldiers would eventually have little airplanes on their shoulders that would launch out and see the field. Mountain View. Mountain View North and Mountain View. Yeah, it was two different schools back then. So China's been focusing on dominating their expanding their global 
influence in the South China Sea and taking all of those minerals and control over all that area first to then project farther out. What, what do you think about electric cars? Do you think that it's, you're just transferring the pollution to a different manufacturer? No, I just think that I think there, I think there's two things behind the green push. I think that they're trying to bring it on too fast. And like I said, the market, when it becomes cheaper to drive an electric car all day long than it is to drive a Toyota Corolla, people are going to buy an electric car. When there's enough uh, electric charging stations and you can get more than 200 miles or 300 miles out of your car and build better batteries, the cars will sell themselves. Because people want to go green. The world, climate change is a real thing. We do affect the climate with all the crap that we make but you can't just stop doing it and it, like like states like california or new york are um and i think dc just did this they're they're buying a bunch of electric buses so instead of letting your older fleet work itself out and still do what's best economically what makes the best sense for the people that when it's like, like everyone will have a car when it's affordable. You know what I mean? We used to ride horses and eventually it became so much easier and it became affordable for everyone to own a car. It's just, it, it's too expensive to produce so much green now to make people do it. And then the other thing, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that the companies that are pushing the green, the ones who are already an established organization, they can afford to go green. It's, a, it's an expensive switch to, the, to stop taking diesel or stop taking you know, ethanol or whatever other fuel you use and switch to another source. Um, and if you can limit the amount of competition that can provide that service, the green companies can eliminate competition that way. You know, do you think that we're just too premature? Because we still don't have a way to dispose of the batteries that the cars are made of. Um, one charge is the equivalent of basically a barrel of oil. It's extremely environmentally unfriendly to mine for the minerals that we need for the batteries. I understand that it's part of the chronology. I mean, it's really not green. None of the shit's green, right? We, we, we have to produce electricity on demand. So even though we've got these huge windmills that produce a ton of electricity when they're on, um, there's a significant amount of power loss between the generator and the consumer. So when, and it, and it makes it nothing more than theater in a way, because when those, when they're off, you're still burning gas, you're driving by, you know, oil jacks and they're burning off methane. Yes. I mean, the energy is around us. I think that the methods of sequestering carbon dioxide are around us. I mean, we've got the ability to do that, but, you know, we could also make freighters nuclear and, and, and fix that problem real, right? So what 
Like, what is it that we're really trying to do? Is, is it just something that they're going to try to rally us around? Because I remember being in Miss Wilsey's class, first grade, Tins Road School, and learning about acid rain. Um, now, I'm sure that, right, and I remember that, I'm, I'm sure that my memory is somewhat distorted because that was 38 years ago. But I remember the impact that it had on me, and they showed us pictures of this is what a, st a marble statue looked like, and then this is what a marble statue looked like after the acid rain, and that was a point that really hit home. Um, they they talked about sea level rise, uh, but they also talked about ice ages and things like that. Now, I don't think that leaning on the natural climate cycle of the planet as a way to be wasteful and disregard the environment. I mean, how much of it can, do you think we could really blame ourselves for? I mean, I know CO2 levels have risen measurably since the start of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, we are also carbon-based matter, and we're taking this carbon from inside of the Earth and putting it back out into the atmosphere. Now, granted, it's got certain environmental impacts, but it's also giving us more of the substrate for trees to grow and plants and then therefore animals and so forth. How much of a difference is it really going to make if you think we've, we wave the magic wand and tomorrow everybody's driving in an electric car? Everything would take time. I don't, like I said, you, I, don't, I don't think that we're affecting the climate as much as is being reported. It's not, I mean, remember, like you said, acid rain, there was also a huge hole in the ozone layer, you know, 30 years ago. And that's, you know, either whatever the story is with that, but it's not the problem it used to be. We're also burning fuel cleaner than we used to. We're still finding new ways to do it. So are we screwing up the planet? Yeah. So there's, there's truth to it that we do produce more crap than the earth would naturally put into the atmosphere. But if we can do it better and better on the way to find a way to not do that, which I, when I say going green would be a way to still support our energy needs without destroying the planet at the same time. And I think eventually we'll, when, as technology advances and people strive to reach those goals, when entrepreneurs and inventors and business leaders get together and try to solve a problem like the free market allows them to do, that things will – what people want is a, an electric car or something of that nature. And if they can make that possible, which I think they will eventually, it just can't be forced because when you force something on the people – not everyone can afford to. I can afford to buy a used Corolla. I can't afford to buy, you know, a Honda or whatever the Ford hybrid or whatever it is. Well, I've got one for you. So, New Jersey, we did a plastic bag ban, right? Save the save the save the fucking manatees. Plastic bag ban, and it turns out that now we've got these bags these reusable bags that everybody's using but these reusable bags aren't recyclable but the plastic bags that they banned were so we've got this confluence of these non-recyclable non-biodegradable bags that are just building up being thrown out in the landfills yeah or one-time use plastic or like i remember like starbucks is like we're not gonna give you a plastic straw we'll give you a yeah, we'll give you a paper straw wrapped in one-time use plastic 
uh, before I forget, you were mentioning before when you ran to DC, I remember one of the comments you had made on Facebook was how you, you would see fireball bottles all up and down. <laughs> you see them. Yep. You know, I resonate with that. I'm like, dude, that is my, that is my walk. When I walk around DC fireball, empty fireball bottles everywhere. As a runner, I can tell you that the most oft come upon piece of refuse on the side of the road is hands down, unequivocally, fireball uh, airplane bottles. 100%. And I see a lot of stuff, you know, and it's funny because I have, I feel like as though it's incumbent upon me to, if I run by a plastic bag to pick it up, because that's my sign from the universe that I now have to fill it with the garbage from the side of the road. It's funny, I haven't gotten in, in the 10 years or so that I've really been running, nobody has said anything to me about it. But I'll pick garbage up on the street and drop it off at the next mailbox. And I just put it on the ground there. But I figured these people have been looking at it for three months. The least I could do is put it near where they put their garbage cans. Maybe then they'll throw it out. But I can say with absolute certainty that New Jersey has got to be the most littered state that I've ever run in. There's no question about it. DC, Maryland, was, they would give you plastic bags, but they would charge you five or 10 cents per bag, depending on what store you were in. When they were just trying to give you a barrier to entry, though, because it's not like they fought carbon credits with those, that five or 10 cents. They just took it as, I mean, that bag cost a fraction of a penny to make. How long, how long do you think America stays on top for? I mean, how long do you think? How long do you think we can carry the torch? If you believe what Ray Dal uh, Dalio, his his uh, example in his book, and it makes a lot of sense that based historically, based on the numbers and the and the political activity, that America would be on its way down, and China would be on its way up. So eventually, we're gonna fight. You know, the new world order, not the, when I say world order, I'm not thinking, you know, WC, WCW, the real new world order, or like, or like world order like Trump or, you know, the, the rich people behind the, yeah, the rich people behind the desk, the world order as in which country or group of countries is on, who's, who's calling the shots. And either you check aggression and keep yourself on top. Or you end up going to fight the next big kid on the block, and then that person, that country, will will reap the benefits. So he doesn't really get into this, but it's kind of what when I when I was reading people who disagreed with him, right? And they were trying to say, you know, the reason that America is in the situation they are, but China's kind of the same, and. And I don't agree with that because China doesn't have the reserve currency. China doesn't have. Yeah, they are the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. They are in the process of starting their own currency, like the euro, call it the BRIC dollar or whatever it is. But if they can get enough people, or enough, well, I keep saying people, another enough countries to accept their currency, it could devalue America's. And the reason we haven't had so much trouble with our dollar staying strong throughout the years is because we are the reserve currency. And 
we can control the flow of that currency through through MMT hypothetically. But the problems we're seeing now, especially in the last if you start back in like 1947 or something, right, up until 2020, no matter what party was in power, the inflation rate was somewhere around 2.5%, right? And you can argue that a little bit of inflation is good because without inflation, prices would all eventually come down and everybody would wait and buy something on sale. But if you have too much inflation, which is what we have now, and if, if 1947 is too far back, if you go back to 1990, regardless of what political party was in power, Inflation was about 3.5%, give or take, right? Average throughout the, from 90 up until 2020. It was a little bit, it was, I'm sorry, it was a little bit lower. It was the twos in the 90s and an average a little bit higher the 40 years before that. Now inflation is at like eight and change. And you can, and the, because the, when the government doesn't take in enough, enough taxes, they have to print money to pay for the deficit, because the overspending, right? And if you check the deficit spending in the last, you know, you could probably start at Clinton, but it was probably more Bush with all the war spending that he did. That, our, our, again, like I said, our 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 debt, our deficit spending is at thirty one trillion, not counting what we owe people in the future. And. And I'm not good at explaining why why we went going off the gold standard screws us. But when inflation itself is a tax on savings, right? Because in an inflationary period, having cash is the worst thing. Because if you're in stocks or in bonds or in whatever, metal, if you want to buy metal, those prices adjust for inflation. So... Uh, if you buy, you know, a silver dollar at twenty bucks, and at the end of the thing, when inflation's over, you can get it back for whatever is the equivalent of twenty dollars today that it was when you bought the coin. But that hundred dollars that you, but the for that hundred dollars that you never took out of the bank, is now worth less because your hundred dollars is still a hundred dollars, the same as everybody else's. So when they print more money and put it into the system. At a faster rate than they don't have an actual way to 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 measure it, but Milton Friedman said they grow the money rate the same rate as the economy grows, and then you won't you won't you shouldn't have an inflation problem. Quantitative easing is when they is what they, they tried to do, but the inflation rate now being at A is because of the influx of dollars, especially since 2020. When all the checks went out, and then when Biden came in, and then put out more checks, and then yeah, we were getting we were getting checks from the government every two weeks. We're like, where is all of this money coming from for like three months? It's all getting tacked on to the end. And when interest rates rise, it's bad for the government because all the government needs to do is pay its interest at the end of the year, right? But when rates are higher, they end up owing more when they have to pay. So then when, then when they're going to default, they raise the debt limit. Remember when raising the debt limit was like, holy shit, you're going to raise the debt limit? Now it's like, oh, okay. You know, 
yeah, we'll, we'll just do it again. So if the theory is that you can just keep borrowing on credit and lending and borrowing and printing money, yeah, you won't have to pay your debts because you control the money, but you still are accumulating all this debt that needs to be paid because it's the debt spread out. You know, other countries have our money sitting in their banks as reserve currency to pay their stuff. Where does that end? You know, where where the debt's not getting any smaller. It continues to grow. Like you said, it has to get paid back. I guess my first question is to who? Uh, my second question is then, well, what if? You know, what are they going to do about it if they don't? Doesn't there get to be a point where the numbers just don't matter anymore? And that's when it's going to start falling apart. What does that look like? What does that mean? Oh, I don't know. I mean, if you listen to like, um, I'm very good at pointing out where people are screwing up. I'm not very good at policy on how to fix it. But when it comes to inflation and fixing the debt, and there's a guy who ran for governor in New York. His name's Larry Sharp. And he's a really good policy dude. And I've heard this from other um, Austrian economic is where I tend to lean, right? Is the, the Austrian school of economics, which is um, less government, individual rights. Don't mess with the market. The market can fix itself. You know, all you do is make it worse if you interfere with things. Where the Keynesians are MMT and what's MMT? The modern monetary theory. Okay. You said that before. Okay. So the business the business cycle of boom and bust, right? Right. You get the recession, depression, all that, right. Yeah, yeah. That eventually a boom a boom will eventually turn into a bust. And MMT MMT's theory is that we can do these things by messing with by messing with the system to make the recessions not as bad. And what they do is possibly fix it in the short term, but in the long term, all these things come end up coming to bite them in the ass. And then they have to make more do new more things to fix problems they never would have had in the first place if you hadn't caused them in the first place. So winning a war is always good for you. Fighting a war is always good for you. Well, there's, um, I don't remember, there's a good argument for that too, that it's actually not that good for you. Because it goes back to, if you go to war, right, the men, the men hypothetically go to war, right? If you don't, like, it's during the, like in World War II, when men went to war. And one of the, one of the biggest myths that you learned in high school, it was, that FDR saved the Great Depression, right? He was the man, and his, the, the New Deal is what saved it. But if you listen to an, an Austrian economist who breaks down the numbers for you, you can tell that's actually not what happened. And so you send all the men, all, you send the best people in your workforce to war. All your skilled labor goes to war. So then you bring women in, and then all the factories and stuff gets switched to produce war things. So when you're producing tanks and bombs, you're not producing the other needs. And if you take, if you take, so adding all the women to the workforce was great if they were going to start building the things that weren't getting built for the war effort. 
You know, so again, it's the government spending, increasing the GDP because they're spending so much. They're borrowing and then spending it on the war effort. And when the men came back and went back to the factories and everything got switched back, unemployment shot up because all the women were now out of work. So, and then you end up with all that debt. And again, it worked out for us because we became the, the having the, the world's reserve currency is so key for America to be allowed to financially run things they had the way they've been doing. Like again, with, with the fractional lending, eventually it's going to come to an end. And you can take an expert MN, MMT person like uh, like Paul Krugman, who the left loves, but he's also been saying that inflation wasn't a problem, that inflation was transitory, that all this stuff was going to happen. And then here we are with 8% inflation. And one of the, the other things that like, the, the talking points, they, they want you to, t- to not look at the real problem, which is, infl- inf- like, like, who do you blame for inflation, right? It's got to be somebody's problem. And the answer is, it's the people who make the budget. So it's the president, it's Congress, and it's the Senate. They're the one who sets the budget, and everything they spend past that either gets tacked onto the deficit or has to be covered by the, the printing money. The pay for all the things that that come out. So the difference between you'll hear a lot of they blamed it all on big companies, right? Companies are greedy. Oil companies are greedy. If that's true, right? And companies are greedy. And when I just told you a couple minutes ago that up until 2020, for for 30 years, the inflation was at you know two and change. Why weren't the companies greedy back then? Why did they suddenly start becoming greedy? Yes, a war will increase. If Russia produces 5% of the world's, the world's oil and they're at fucking war, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a ripple-down effect. And everything that uses oil is going to go up. But it's a, it's a specific raise in prices due to a, a, the rise of a specific price. When inflation is the rise of prices, the average price of goods. So there's times when when prices are going up, but other prices are coming down. Like air travel was getting cheaper while other things were raising. So inflation is where, where people start to, to, they think that a price increase is inflation. Or if you buy a pint of ice cream one week, and then you come back and buy the same pint of ice cream, but it's not, they shrunk the package a little bit. They still charge you the same $5. That's shrinkflation. That's not inflation. Inflation, according to Ludwig von Mises, is the exceeding amount of cash into the business, into the GDP. There's too much cash chasing the same amount of product which makes the purchasing power of your dollar less. And the only way to do that is by printing more money. Because if it was based on greedy companies, your dollar wouldn't lose purchasing value. It just wouldn't buy you as much gas because gas is harder to get. But you can still buy or whatever the hell doesn't use gas. You know what I mean? And it's hard to imagine it because we use oil for everything. You know, 
So even if we weren't, didn't have inflation, the war would have caused prices to rise. If there's a flood, if a dam breaks, if we run out of oil, you know what I mean? Those things are natural things to happen. And the free market finds ways around it. Because if there's money to be made, people are going to find a way to make it. And to be and to be a successful businessman, you need to offer a better product and usually a cheaper people will come to you. Do you think there was any funny business with the last presidential election? I don't know. I mean What's your gut tell you? I there's always some kind of fraud that happens, whether it's a bunch of people in the at the end of the night who were filling out election forms for people who didn't show up. But you know, losing thousands of ballots and then finding them, you know, weeks later or you know, it's taken us months to count a couple of counties in Arizona when, you know, for a hundred years we had a, we had the results of that night of the election. Um, and then if you track who makes the voting machines and then you look at the board members or who actually owns the company, who owns the company, who owns the shell company, who owns whatever, who builds the machines, eh. and then they're all connected to the internet. and is it possible? I'm not going to jump on Trump lost from cheating until they, they got to You got to show me the, the red herring. You know, there's got to be show me Biden's hand in the election box, putting more ballots in it. But until then, I don't think that it's that grand of a scale. So you, you don't think that whatever funny business did go on was outside of the normal influence of funny business that typically happens during the election? I think as technology advances and what I know about digging through, you know, being so much with American foreign policy, to think that we can screw with somebody, so many other elections around the world, to think that they're not screwing with ours is ridiculous. So that they're not screwing with ours or we're not screwing with ours? No, I think it's it's there's definitely influences from foreign powers and even domestic powers who have an agenda. But I think it's more in the war of information and the war of keeping us into our little tribes. And I think that they're trying to keep power through those methods as opposed to the high level of sophisticated cheating that would have had to have happened for Trump to lose. Okay, so even go back before that, you don't do you think that the the Russians interfered with the election? But like adding or subtracting the 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 the, the vote total? Well, in any kind of meaningful way. Oh yeah, 100%. If it comes to propaganda, which the Russians are amazing at, or influence, or money, or some kind of soft power projection, 100%. And China did it, and Iran did it, and I'm sure the, Israel, the Israelis fuck with us too. So do you think then that the outside influence had a greater effect on the legitimacy of either election than it being an inside job? No, I think, the in, no, I think that when it comes to the actual 
counting of the tallies and the, the final number of votes, I don't think that was subject to outside influence. Now, could have happened internally? Maybe. It's beneficial for a country like Russia or a country like China to keep someone like they keep the Democrats in power. It's better off for them because they tend to be more sheepish. They're definitely not as as hawkish as you know Rumsfeld and those in the old Republican Guard used to be. You know, the the politics that you and I first voted in. Like my first election was for was for Bush. And I was all like, Bush is the man. Well, I also hated Democrats, but I was like, Bush is the man. And I was all, you know, I fell in love with Bush. I thought he was the best. And after 9-11, he gave that speech on ground zero. And he's like, we're going to, you know, wh whoever hit us, we're going to come find you soon. One of the best off-the-top speeches. Oh, then they gave us the Patriot Act. Yeah. But I, I was gung-ho. I was behind it 100%. And then I started to, you know, when the details start to come out of what they hide from us, you know, I started to, to second guess myself, but it's like I said, it's, been, it's beneficial for for the Russians and the Chinese to put out all the fake information to make us vote a particular way. Because either they support, it's either good for Russia to have a Republican in power, or it's good for them to have a, a Democrat in power. I, I feel like I've I always thought that the political plot process in American politics, the voting was sacrosanct in a way where, yeah, you're going to have some isolated instances of um, issues, right? People filling out ballots, just like any asshole would try to cheat on a test or, you know, copy someone's book report or do something for the team that they could get away with. Like, I, 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 I always felt like it was, people took it seriously. So did I. Um, now, I, right. And I don't know. My my mom used to do it, and uh, when I was a kid, my mom was was always at school. She helped run the. She volunteered. Well, there's no doubt though that the opportunity for voter fraud exists during the polling process. Um, I think most people would agree. Like when I went in there, okay. So when I went in to vote, just a couple weeks ago, I walked in. They didn't have my signature on file because they updated the book from last year. So all that was there was just a blank line. So so my signature during during that election was going to now reset my signature for the book in perpetuity. Now, they didn't ask for my identification. They didn't ask for anything. Any asshole could have gone in there and been like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. But they've never asked for my ID ever. Every time I voted up until this point, I've always signed my name underneath a scribble that was my name from last year, which is easily replicable. Like, I can just throw a fucking M with a squiggle down, and, and you got it. So there's no question that there's an opportunity to fuck with things. I just feel like it, it, it felt a little bit more systemic for lack of a better term, this time around. And, and I don't know exactly how, but I feel like something just doesn't feel right about that last election. And I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it was too... I have the same feeling. I really thought that Trump was going to win. Obviously, D.C. did too, because they boarded everything up the night of the election. And they didn't board it up for Trump. I mean, for Biden. They boarded up that when... Look, I really thought, like... 
I thought Trump was going to win, and I thought the George Floyd riots were going to look like what I saw at the inauguration. It'd be like it would be nothing compared to what was going to happen. I really thought I was going to hit the fan if Trump won. And I'm not saying that the voting fraud didn't exist. It's just I don't. I got to see how like with my mind, I got to like I got to see how they did it. You know, it's like. When you think like the old days, like before they had computers, everyone, you know, filled out a ballot and they put it in a box and they moved it somewhere and they counted them. Like, are we missing boxes or did you save boxes just in case to bring in at the end? I've voted. I've lived a few places, so I voted in a lot of different scenarios. The easiest one ever was was Flanders, New Jersey. You walked in, there was the, the, the machine with the curtain. When I voted recently right down the street from here in Philly. Uh, I went to the school down the street. I waited in line. It was pretty quick. They handed me a big sheet. And there was only five people to, to only five positions being field, filled, but usually it would have a front and a back and all the questions and stuff on it. You go over to your little cardboard cubicle, you fill it out, and then you go over to a machine where it looks like a paper shredder over a garbage can. You put it in, and the guy's like, okay, now press cast or scan and it sucks the paper in and then you hit okay so i guess the machine on top reads it and counts the votes and then at the end of the day you know how many votes were in recorded by the machine i guess hypothetically someone could just keep running things through at the end but like where do you get the extra like when trump was yelling at the guy from georgia he's like and he's like you're down by eleven thousand votes he's like then go find me the eleven thousand votes how narrow can you like can you can you check the vote like when like when bush lost and they were recounting the hanging chads because someone didn't press a button far enough and didn't poke the paper all the way through and it's like did he vote here or no like when you start putting in the human process of oh he voted for bush but he really didn't punch the hole all the way through. Well, we're not going to count that one because he really didn't punch it in. Or you didn't fill the circle in on the Iowa test. Yeah. So you didn't get the question correct. Like he, he didn't fill the oval in the number two pencil. So I'm sure it happens. I just, I got to, they got to catch somebody before I can really think it's at enough to affect the presidential election. There's always pressure from, from, foreign, from foreign nations. But, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick, but don't just use the stick all the time i'd rather not i'd rather use things like soft power than hard power leaving it with the free market and having incentive is better controlled and would help more people than if the government ran it because you can't really look at a government-run facility or program right now and think that it's doing well like think if the dmv or something like that needed your business if you both and i ran dmvs that would register a car and give you a driver's license and you had an app for it and someone could do it on their phone or come in and take a picture and i had them fill out 15 forms and wait in line for an hour and a half everyone's going to come to your shop but when you don't have another choice you you're forced to deal with them there's no incentive for the people running the not even the bureaucrats, the people who run the actual shop, their only incentive is to not get fired. You know, it's almost like the old, the old office space thing. I'm doing enough just not to get fired because if I bust my ass, I don't raise the ranks any faster. 
if I find a better way to process your driver's license, I'm not going to get a cut of that. Even if it makes my job easier, you're not going to listen because you have to go through a chain of command and you do things this way. Just like it was before the government started building them, the people that use the roads will end up paying for them because the goods and services need to be moved around. And we it's not like we didn't have roads and highways before we built the international route 80 and the and the the interstate system goods and services around you said you're okay with certain social services you don't think fucking transportation should be one of them well i mean we'll look at the airlines airlines are independent no they're not they have a lot of rules they do they're high they're, they're probably they're fucking super regulated but i mean in terms of roads Man, you you would have to walk a lot of things back in order for that to happen. I don't think that it's plausible because to ask the communities to self-organize or basically to write out their own districting maps when it comes to shared social service, that would be nearly impossible. I mean, that's all well and good, but I don't know who the fuck to call. I mean, what happens on March 1st when now I need a pothole filled in my road? Like, do you want me to go out in the woods and get a shovel full of dirt and fill it up? I mean, how does that, how would that fix itself in, in that example? The question is who would build the roads? And the answer is everybody that uses them. Right. And I think it's really just, it alludes to the overall concept. And I get that. I get that. Um, I'll tell you something. When I was in Nepal, Nepal has a communist government modeled closely after China's. Like, their utility poles were just bird's nests. It, it, you looked at it and laughed at it as an American. It would never be acceptable over here. A literal, like, bird's nest. And we're in a restaurant, a restaurant, if you call it that. They had wires coming in from the street that were tied right into right into these utility poles. The speaker wire coming through the window to power like an oscillating fan that was screwed to the wall. In order for that country to fix that problem, and I'll air quotes problem, because it's not a problem unless it's a problem, they would have to figure out a way to solve the energy needs of their entire population in a way that is basically free, because that's what it is now. I feel like as though as great as that would be, America would almost have to find oil underneath Mount Everest in order for us to go over there and do them a favor and industrialize their nation for them. Roads, like I'm, I'm all for small government, but I don't know. I, I, it's not just small government in general. It's also more of localizing your government. Who knows better what your town needs than your town? If you're asking New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, to fix whatever. The people who control the money that was taken from you for the roads is now in their trap of what they think the money needs to go to. Again, so the more we allow the government to do it, we get the we get their one option. You get one department of works as opposed to Matt's department of works and Jeff's department of public works. Or what happened in some cities is that Domino's Pizza was literally filling potholes and putting their putting their symbol on. If you wanted to go out and fill a bunch of potholes and put, you know, your logo on it, please go fucking do it. So I was going to ask you a question. I have, I ask all of my guests this question, and I think that you're going to have a really interesting perspective on it. But what does it mean to you to be human? Human. Um, compassionate is one of the first words that comes to mind. Um, I think that treat others how you want to be to be treated but it's more than just like this simple saying like that um 
we should help each other. We should be able to take care of each other as as humans. The blessings in my life is what makes, you know, my human situation unique. You know, the people I know, the people I keep close, the people I love, the ones that I would sacrifice more for is what I get out of being, you know, alive. Family, you know, the the close relationships, the, you know, the things that make the, um, the dopamine go off in your brain. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's more like, it, it's, it's a spiritual thing at the same time is more than, you know, funny, like, it's good sounding quotes, like, you know, treat, like I said before, treat others like you want to be treated. It's more of a, a spiritual relationship with the energy around you and the energy that you give off and how all that works with the other energies sources from the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you another question. What are you most thankful for? I mean, the easy question would be that I'm alive right now. You know, I mean, if if I didn't get a transplant, I literally. Yeah, but what does that give you? Like, what is what is that? What is that being alive right now give you the opportunity to do or experience? It allows me to, to, to live my life better than I was living it before. I do have a second chance. And. I feel like I'm trying to make the most of it with my, with what I'm, with my abilities that I do have at my disposal. There's a saying that goes that every man lives two lives and his second one starts the moment he realizes he has just one. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So that fits for me. Like I really, without sounding cheesy, like I, f- I really do feel like a different person since I woke up from that surgery. Is it easier for you now to put yourself into a mental place where you feel as though you're seeing familiar things for the first time all over again? I wouldn't go so far as I didn't mean to cut you off. I wouldn't go far as saying new. It's almost like I have a better appreciation for for everything. You know, even like having a simple conversation, I'm way more willing to see the other side of someone's point of view to help understand mine better. I take a little bit more time to enjoy things. Like uh, when I'm walking the dog and we stop to look at something, I'll take a couple extra seconds than I normally would have before to appreciate what is still in front of me after all the that circus that I went through and uh, the, the recovery. Because I, I was angry when I woke up, like not angry at anything in particular. I was just kind of angry. And they attribute that to something called uh, survivor's guilt. Do you feel as though it's easier for you to forgive yourself for certain things now than it was before? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I've been dealing with. Uh, it's actually kind of common that... Um, there's nothing wrong with holding on to grief as long as you still make rooms for other things. And I stole that from the wire. I steal a lot of shit from the wire. But um, 
I did I dwelled a lot on you know if if this had gone that way or you know if I hadn't gotten sick where would I be or if I hadn't done a lot of the stuff that I did when I was prioritizing drinking and having a good time over what I see now like like Monday it was hard to it was easy to criticize myself because I was constantly Monday morning quarterbacking myself you know a lot of what ifs what if this had gone that way what if that had gone that way and then I you think about if that shit hadn't happened that caused me pain then or is causing me pain now I still wouldn't be where I am now and I'm thankful for everything I have I love I love my wife. You know, if it wasn't for her, I never would have gotten through surgery. I never would have done anything. She she helped me. I tell her this all the time. She hates when I say it. She saved my life. Because if it wasn't for her, and if I hadn't gotten sick, I probably would have kept beating on that bottle until uh, until this until this happened later in life. I saw it's almost like a blessing that it happened to me. I didn't think that things were going bad for me because because of my drinking. You know, like I was doing great in college. I you know I got into got into a hard ass grad school and I was doing great in grad school and the entire time you know I was taking a taste here and there and I was doing okay and then I look at it I look back at it now and be like yeah I got through it and I I still made shit happen even though I was hindering my abilities with my abuse of alcohol that I wish I could see myself I wish I go back and tell myself to chill 20 years ago. Do you feel as though your life's purpose has been fulfilled yet? There's a lot of things I, I haven't done. You know, am I looking to, to leave a legacy for the rest of the other people are going to know about? Like, are they going to read about me? Am I going to write some amazing economic book that people are going to be talking about, you know, in, in 10 years, like the ones I read today? Or can I pass on knowing that I did the best for the people around me i did the like i made the decision to do the best i could with the people around me with the opportunities i was given and i think that i'm taking that much more seriously now that my mind is clear and i look at it in a different way than i used to if that makes sense what's one thing that you that you remind yourself of over and over again like for me, it, it could be something like cursing, right? I, I, when I hear myself curse too much in front of my kids, like there's a, there's a, a voice that kicks on in my head and reminds me not to do that. You know, there, there's, for me, the list is like dozens of items long. But since you've had the experience and you've had the perspective and a, and a realization that I hopefully will never have, um, how has that changed you? What what's something that you that you now remind yourself of over and over again? Got to remind myself to slow down a lot, um, and that has a lot to do with. I have a, I have ADHD, which wasn't really like classified until like I didn't I didn't know until I was uh, in high school, and if it wasn't for Mrs. Fackler in math, I probably never would have gotten checked. Since since surgery and since you know, I had to see a therapist a lot. Um, I got she asked me some some of the things like like what you're asking now. When I feel myself moving too fast and getting off target, and I have a tendency to to get lost in my thought a lot, to 
the, the focus on what's in front of me. And then I hear my dad's voice and it's like, take one task at a time. So tell people where they can find you if you want them to find you. Um, do you want them to follow your, uh, your troll account on Twitter? Yeah. And the only thing I really pimp out is the, uh, is the golf tournament that was usually in August, the Cayman Cup. And when, uh, when that gets closer, I'll let you know. And there'll be a place to, uh, to donate. And every, everything goes to the, the, the U.S., the liver, the, the, the liver Foundation. And it's specifically for liver research.